New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Well, good morning, New Horizon. It is great to uh, be with you. Uh, it is, as I say, our first time in the events, and uh, we are loving what we have experienced so far, and uh, just a great sense of God being at work, and God being at work in us. We've already been well-fed by the ministry that we've received here. One of the things that I, I didn't say uh, in introducing myself there is uh, that I love to run. It's one of the things I'm kind of into. And uh, a few weeks back, I was running with a friend of mine who's the most senior doctor in all of the hospitals across Nottingham. He's kind of in charge of them all. Uh, we've been friends for decades, and uh, now we're kind of middle-aged men. We like to go for a very gentle-paced run in which it's slow enough that we can talk the whole time. And uh, in true middle-aged fashion, we spent our 90-minute run along the river putting the worlds to rights. And it was fantastic. It felt so good afterwards, just what we like to do. And as we ran, he told me this fun fact, which stayed with me, which is that the ability to balance on one leg for 20 seconds or more is one of the best, statistically, is one of the best survival indicators uh, of your chances to live for the next 10 years. So if you can balance on one leg for 20 seconds or more, try it, not right now, but try it, that's a pretty good indicator of whether you're going to survive for 10 years. Interestingly, though, it's not just an indicator of good health. It's also a determinant of good health. In other words, he said, if you look after your balance, and if you make sure, I'm kind of trying it now, but I can't speak at the same time, um, if you make sure that you can still balance for 20 seconds on one leg in 10 years' time, then it's still a good indicator for the next 10 years as well. In other words, it's actually a determinant of good health, and it will increase your life expectancy. Now, I have no idea if that's true, but he's a doctor, so I suppose it must be, and I liked it. And if you see me, as my wife tells me, I do quite a lot, sometimes preaching on one leg, you'll understand I'm just doing my test for the day. Now, most of you don't look quite as excited about that as I am, but actually... I found it intriguing to think about because here's just this one very kind of specific, kind of little thing, really, you know? Can you balance on one leg for 20 seconds or not? But this one very specific thing is hugely powerful, both as an indicator of your health and even in some sense as a determinant of your health, even though it's just this one little thing. And you know, in the same way, according to the Bible, the state of our minds, the way in which we think, it may be a very specific thing, maybe not something we even think about very much, but actually it's incredibly powerful in the Christian life. According to Ephesians 4, a darkened mind, Paul says, is an indicator of spiritual ill health. But in Romans 12, that we'll read together in a few moments, a renewed mind is a key determinant of spiritual health. It's a means of transformation. If your mind is being renewed, your life is being changed. And the Bible's worldview 
Ideas matter. We know that they matter in terms of society and sociological change. But it's true biblically. Ideas matter. How we think matters. Our minds matter. That little phrase, our minds matter, was actually the title of a short book by John Stott way back in 1972. He said this, God made us in his own image, and one of the noblest features of the divine likeness is our capacity to think. But even at that time, Stott was warning that in the Christian world, we tend to elevate religious ritual above rigorous thinking, social activism above theological reflection, and religious experience above biblical teaching. A little bit later, 1994, Os Guinness wrote a book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, making a very similar plea, challenging us in his own way that we become more obsessed with our abs and cardio than we are with obeying Jesus' first and greatest command, which is to love God with our minds. Our minds matter. Mark Knoll, of course, wrote a uh, a famous book around the same time, The Scandal of the Evangelical Minds. And the scandal of the evangelical mind, according to Mark Knoll, was essentially that there is no evangelical mind. That's how neglected he felt it was. Perhaps a slight overstatement, but a powerful call. So I'm excited that we're looking at this theme of the renewed minds uh, this year at New Horizon. It's a brilliant and strategic Theme. I do quite a bit of work with the, uh, the Evangelical Alliance, along with Donna and Peter Linus and others that you'll perhaps know. And one of the things that we're very much focused on there is the way that we think about what it means to be human. Here's a hugely contested space in our society. What is the narrative that governs our thinking about what it means to be human? There are lots of competing narratives out there, many of which have very destructive implications for the way that we relate and live. It's the stuff that the culture wars spring from. But actually, the Bible's narrative gives us a renewed way of thinking about what it means to be human. And that changes everything. It's a great example of the power of the renewed mind. But I want to say, just as a kind of flag right up front this morning, that in the Bible, the mind includes the intellect, but as I've already mentioned, it is much more than the intellect. The mind in the Bible is a lot to do with the way that we think, the the attitudes that shape our thinking. It isn't just our kind of raw intellectual processing power. And so this week, we're going to see that the renewal of the mind doesn't just produce great Christian academics. We need more of them, and we need to pray for them, of course. But this isn't only an issue for a kind of elite intelligentsia within the Christian world. No, the renewing of our minds, according to Scripture, impacts everything. It cultivates holy lives. It undergirds good mental health. It helps us deal with doubt and crisis. It expands missional imagination so that we begin to reimagine what our lives are all about. And most of all, it takes us on a journey of transformation towards Christ-likeness so that increasingly we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the mind of Christ. We've begun to think 
in a Christ-centered way. So let's dive into our first text, our first key text, which is going to teach us that the renewed mind is key in the worship of our whole lives. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read these verses to you from the NIV. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. I'm not an Anglican, but I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. There we go. It's good to have a few Anglicans here. The renewed mind as key to whole life worship. I want to dwell on these verses for our next uh, few minutes and uh, answer just a few key questions to help us begin to dig into this theme of the renewed mind and get some basics in place. The, uh, the phrase there, the, uh, renew, the renewing of your mind, comes in verse 2. But, but that word renew or renewal is, of course, freighted in the New Testament. In fact, in, the script, in Scripture as a whole. Because the whole Bible story ends up with everything in heaven and on earth renewed, made new. Revelation 21.5, Behold, I have made all things New. That's where history is going. That's the great cosmic mission of God, the reconciliation and renewal of all things in Christ. And at the heart of God's cosmic purpose to renew all things, according to Romans chapter 8, is the renewal of our humanity itself. Restoring us to be all that we were created to be so that as God's sons and daughters, we stand in the new creation to reign with him, which is what we were created for right back at the beginning. So fundamentally, the renewal of our minds is about our minds becoming tuned to that future, about our minds becoming conditioned to the life of the kingdom of God, which will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. His reign of justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's future-oriented. But we do need to be really clear that when we talk about the renewing of our minds, we're not just talking about learning a few rules of how to live and then trying a little bit harder to follow them. That's, that's the spirit, if you like, of religion. And, and as human beings, we default towards that because it kind of reinforces our pride. It gives us a sense that we can do this. This is, this is our game. But that whole idea is totally foreign to the book of Romans. Because Romans teaches us that by itself, the law lacks the power to change the human heart. And that that power to change the human heart can be found only in what Romans 7 verse 6 describes as the new way of the Spirit. So the renewing of our minds is a work of the Holy Spirit within us who changes our hearts 
so that they begin to beat in time with the rhythm of the future, in time with the rhythm of the kingdom of God. Romans 8 verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And just get that word there, desires, for a moment. Okay, this is, this is something more than profound argument. It's not less than that, but it's going deeper than that. This change in our thinking, change in our minds, is linked to a change in our hearts, our desires, as the Holy Spirit comes to align our desires with God's own desires. He internalizes God's will and wisdom within our hearts, slowly, gradually, over time, that deep inner transformation, so that the very way we think, the very way that we come at life, the values that are shaping our whole worldview begin to change and come into line with the kingdom of God, beating with the heartbeat of the future. And of course, that's exactly where Paul lands at the end of verse 2 of Romans 12. He says, after the renewing of your mind, then you, 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 get that? You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Not just you'll have all the right answers because you learned a few facts, but no, God will so work in your minds that, that your whole way of thinking will become in tune with his desires. You will have internalized his will, his wisdom in your own heart so that you yourself become increasingly able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's, of course, very close to what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about the new covenant and the way that that new covenant would bring a transformation in our hearts. And just see how closely our minds and our hearts are related in those prophecies. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 7. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the promise of the new covenant in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the renewal of our minds. You know how we Christians often like to talk about uh, the contrast between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And I kind of know what that means. But, and I know why we say it. But, do you know, it's not really a contrast that works very well in this conversation. Because actually, according to, to this, this concept of the renewing of our minds, it is in the transformation of our hearts that our minds get renewed. Chris Wright put it like this, the heart in Hebrew thought was not so much the seat of the emotions and feelings as it was the seat of the intellect, will, and intention. You think in your heart, and your heart shapes your character, your choices, and your decisions. So this week is not about trying to learn a few more kind of facts that will make us slightly cleverer Christians. No, it's something much more profound than that. We're looking for a work of God among us 
We are looking for that deep inside-out change, shaped by the Word of God, nurtured by the Spirit of God, that brings transformation from the core of our beings, worked out in every sphere of our existence. So there's our first question. What is the renewed mind? Second question, how do our minds get renewed? Again, back to verse 2, and you'll see there's both a negative and a positive here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. There's the negative. If our minds are going to get renewed, there is some stuff to say no to. There is this attritional influence of what Paul calls the world, which isn't just the creation. This is human society organized without reference to God. And, and I suppose we might describe it in our terms as, as the secular world, trying to pull us away from the relevance of God so that God either doesn't exist at all, or if he does, he's not relevant to the way that we think and live. And that attritional influence that's trying to decenter and dethrone God all the time, that's a way of thinking that's got to be resisted. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. That's the negative. And it's not just about the world's behaviors. It's about its way of thinking, its values, its idolatries, its attitudes. Don't conform. There's something to say no to. But when, we, when our vision of holiness is just to do with saying no, it never works. And in the Bible, it never is just about saying no. There's something to replace the negative. Something to embrace as well as something to resist. And so the positive is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And did you notice that is both a command, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, and a passive, be transformed. It's a work to be done in us. So there's a kind of paradox there, isn't there? This renewing of our minds is on the one hand, God's work in us by his spirit. In that sense, it's a passive. But we have a responsibility. It's a command as well. We are responsible to learn attentiveness to his voice by meditating on scripture, by cultivating a, a responsive sensitivity to the presence and activity of the spirit in our lives. What does that mean? Well, I guess it means lots of things, but the thing I always find most helpful is just to whiz right to the end of 2 Corinthians 3, which we're going to come to in a couple of days' time. And that phrase where it says, we all, uh, with unveiled faces, contemplate the glory of the Lord. And as we do so, we are transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. What is it that the Holy Spirit most uses to transform our desires, to change our hearts? It is to contemplate the glory of Christ in his word, in our worship, in our prayers, to contemplate his beauty, to dwell on his grace, his compassion, his justice, his truth, the sheer wonder of all he is. And as we contemplate that glory, to love him so much that we start to desire deep inside to be like him. We are responsible to nurture this work of God within us. That's how it happens. Attentiveness to his voice and his word and sensitivity to the work of his spirit within us. Why is it significant? 
Well, according to verse 1 of Romans 12, it's significant because this is how we grow to be whole life worshippers. That's really the key idea in these two verses. Verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... And we've just had in Romans 11 chapters expounding the mercy of God in the person and work of Christ. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. I want you to feel how tangible all of this is. Offering our bodies. We talk a lot about offering up our lives, don't we? And that's good, but you know, I can kind of offer up my life fairly vaguely without it necessarily meaning anything too specific. But Paul's much more concrete, isn't he? I want you to offer your bodies, your physical concrete existence, your daily reality, your 24-7 living. Offer all that to be for the glory and praise and pleasure of God. And it turns out that the key to offering our bodies in worship to God is the renewing of our minds by the Word and Spirit of God. And that's actually very important because otherwise, all of our activism just becomes moralistic religion. It just becomes some stuff that we do because we think it's a good thing to do. No, no, no. It's meant to be rooted in and growing out of this deep work of God in us where he's renewing our minds by his word and spirit. I think these, uh, these verses, these two verses uh, at the beginning of Romans 12, function within the, the book as a kind of heading for where Paul is going in the whole of the rest of the letter. And if you see it that way, you see that this impact of whole life worship undergirded by the renewing of our minds actually fans out into literally the whole of our lives. Just looking on through Romans 12, it impacts our attitudes to ourselves and to others and to our gifts, verses 3 to 8. Later in the chapter, it impacts the way we do relationships, the way we use our homes, the way we deal with conflicts. Over into Romans 13, it impacts the way that we view the state and the way that we view the future. Romans 14, it impacts how we deal with difference in the church. Romans 15, it impacts how we think and act towards cross-cultural mission. Can you see the scope? It's huge. The renewal of our minds transforms the whole of life into worship as it leads us to live in every sphere of our existence for the pleasure and praise of God. Do you know, I think that's a beautiful way to live and a deeply satisfying way to live because it colors, it enriches, it sanctifies everything. According to this worldview, changing a nappy can be worship. Creating wealth in your business can be worship. Engaging in politics can be worship. Writing a set of accounts can be worship. Caring for a sick person can be worship. Running can be worship, yay. Making art can be worship. Making love can be worship. In fact, it's meant to be. In the words of Martin Luther, 
even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. Whole life worship. And it begins with the renewing of our minds by God's word and spirit. Second key passage I want to take you to this morning is in Ephesians 4. So you might want to just uh, flick over to that in your Bible or on your device, however you're following. Romans 4, verses 17 to 32, where we're going to see the renewed mind as a key to deep change. Let me read these verses. Romans 4, verses 17 to 32. So I tell you this, Paul says, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God's. Just after I uh, left university, I joined the National Health Service Graduate Management Training Scheme. It was their scheme for kind of creating the future senior managers uh, of the health service. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, as part of that scheme, we got to engage with some of the top managers in our part of the country, which was very stimulating. And I really remember one occasion where a few of us trainees were traveling with a really big cheese in the region. He was the CEO of one of the, uh, the whole district health authorities, responsible for everything in that district. Uh, his name was Tony, and uh, we, he was a good guy. We were quizzing him about managing people in processes of change, because there was a lot of that going on. And he said to me, do you know, you can't expect to change what people think or believe, but you can expect people to change their behavior. 
You can't expect to change what people think or believe, but you can expect people to change their behavior. Well, as I've reflected on it, I've wondered whether that's partly why the NHS has run into so many problems. For sure, it's the exact opposite change strategy from the one that God wants us to pursue in our lives, which begins with changing the way we think and believe and then works out into change in behavior. I think what Ben shared with us last night on this was absolutely brilliant. If you weren't here, please get hold of the, uh, the CD or however you want to listen to it. It was fantastic. And Ephesians 4 is deeply in tune with everything that, uh, that Ben said. Let me just try and open it up briefly to you. It begins with the challenge of the mind. According to Paul, the problem with our humanity is rooted in problems in our thinking. Verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It's a thinking problem governed by a heart problem that lies at the heart of the human condition. But if the problem is in our thinking, that's also where the solution has got to lie. And sure, that's exactly the way he builds on it in verse 20 and following. The way of life that you learned, uh, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard, there's a kind of thinking word, about Christ, and were taught, another thinking word, in him, accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see? The problem is in our thinking, governed by a problem in our hearts. And therefore, the solution lies in exactly the same place. Something I had to learn in a rather painful set of experiences in my life uh, four or five years ago. I had a period of depression, fairly serious depression. I'll say a bit more about that tomorrow. And during that period, I had some fantastic counseling, which really helped straighten some things out for me. And part of what it helped me see was that behind each of my disordered emotions and decisions and actions, there was a way of thinking that had formed those emotions, those decisions, and those actions. Of course, there's more to it than that when it comes to mental illness. There's a thing called brain chemistry as well. But as I had to think my way through the fog, this was incredibly helpful. As gradually I understood, I could only change the surface stuff, those disordered emotions that were so problematic, by identifying the underlying thinking that was feeding it all. And then having identified it, to take it on, actually, to begin to challenge it so that I started to think differently. And as I did that, gradually change came about. Now, for me, it's very personal, but for me, the, uh, the challenging thing was my, the way I thought that I needed the approval of certain people and how it felt like my life was falling apart when I didn't get that approval, certain key people especially, whose approval I couldn't get, whatever I tried, 
but I felt I needed, I thought I needed it. And the counseling helped me see that, you know, I didn't need it. And actually, to make it something so important to me was kind of to make it into an idol in my life. I had to let go of that way of thinking and start to challenge it for myself. I had to be the one that started to say, why do you need that person to approve? What will happen if they don't? Is it really that bad? Will your life really fall apart? I had to challenge the way of thinking in order to start to push back on the emotional reaction to feeling the loss of their approval. But it's not just about addiction to approval. It can be all kinds of other things as well. It can be patterns of perfectionist thinking. I have to be perfect and look perfect and feel perfect to be acceptable. Why? Who says so? Is that how God relates to us? It can be patterns of controlling thinking. I have to be in control of myself and my circumstances and the people around me in order to feel okay about life. Why? You'll never be in control. God is in control. He's on his throne. I, I can't be in control. I've got to let it go. Do you see, challenging these patterns, these deeply ingrained patterns of thinking with the truth of who God is and has revealed himself to be in Christ. And in beginning to challenge that thinking, learning to think differently. And so pushing back on the disordered emotions. And Paul, of course, is saying something very, very similar here. But he's not just talking about disordered emotions. He's talking about the transformation of disordered lives in their entirety. Deep change happens by addressing the problem of the minds. But then in verses 22 to 24, he comes up with this kind of pattern of transformation. The key issue in verses 22 to 24, I think, is the issue of identity and how we think about who we are. So Paul says, look, there was, there was an old me that existed before I came to Christ. That's the old self. But now there is a new self, a new me, that began to exist the moment that I put my faith in Jesus. And then here's the stunning thing, end of verse 24, this new self was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That, that's a verse every Christian needs to know off by heart. My new self was created in Christ Jesus to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow. It's become a very important verse to me. But here's the key battle for our minds at this point. Which self is the real me? Is it the old self that was crucified with Jesus and is corrupted by deceitful desires? Is that actually the real me when the chips are down and the decisions get made? Or is the real me, the new me that began the moment I put my faith in Jesus, which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness? That's the question. Which one is the real me? Because, you know, every time I say, do you know, I'm just the kind of person that has a bad temper, and I therefore treat people roughly. I, I'm just like that. I'll never change. It's, it's just me. It's just the way I am. Every time I say that, or whatever your equivalent is, 
What I'm actually saying is that the real, real me is the old me, not the new me. But that can't be right. It can't be right. It has to be, surely, that the real you is the true, is the new you, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But God is not like this old self with the bad temper treating people roughly. He's not like that. So the real me can't be like that. Or to come back to something that Ben was addressing so helpfully last night. Every time I say, look, I'm just... I'm just addicted to pornography. I, I kind of know it's wrong, I, but it is just me. I, I can never change. Every time we're saying that, we're saying the old me is the real me. Because there's no way that the new me is like that, because the new me was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Friend, there is nothing Satan wants more than to hardwire your brain to believe that the old you is the true you. Because if he wins that battle for your minds, he has won the whole battle and you'll never change. And then he kind of applies this stuff about identity in a very simple pattern of transformation in verses 22 to 4. There are three steps. The first in verse 24 is to put off, to take off that old self. Verse 22 You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's first and foremost an attitudinal thing. It's saying, look, I won't be defined by my past any longer because I've left that behind with Jesus and nailed it to the cross. It died with him. It therefore has no rights over me, no power over me. Put off your old self. It's an attitude of mind. But then, as Ben was explaining last night, it's a set of actions as well, isn't it? Take take steps, specific steps, to cut out the influence from your life, whether it's a filter on your phone or just a, a habit of breathing slowly for a couple of minutes before you shout your mouth off and say things that you wish you didn't say. Or maybe it's an unhealthy relationship that you need to bring to an end. Put off your old self. That's the beginning. But you won't get deep change if you stop there. There's more. The second thing is to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Verse 23, you were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds. There it is. What does that mean? It means identify the idols of the minds, the ways of thinking that are feeding those behaviors of your old self. And as we were seeing, challenge those with the truth of the gospel, asking the Holy Spirit to bring your deep thinking into line with the gospel. So for me, instead of in order to flourish, I have to have those, that person's approval, I've got to push back on that and say, no, I can't make that person's approval an idol in my life. The only approval that counts is the approval of God. That's what I've got to live for. Or if for you, the whole thing is about perfectionism. I have to be perfect in order to be acceptable. I've got to push back on that and say, no, God doesn't accept me on the basis of my performance. And if he does, to be honest, we're all doomed. No, he accepts me on the basis of the finished work of Christ. That's how I'm acceptable before him. Or for perhaps some of the guys here, 
Instead of building relationships with women based on objectifying them to gratify my desires, and there's some new thinking I want to embrace. Holy Spirit, I want to build relationships of honor and trust and deep respect with the women in my life, not using them for my selfish ends, but celebrating their gifts, seeing them flourish into all that God made them to be. That's the new thinking that I need to embrace to underpin deep change. Put off your old self, be made new in the attitude of your minds, and then thirdly, put on the new self. In other words, embrace the truth that the new you is the true you. And so accept who you really are as a child of God in Christ, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I just love this. I find it so encouraging. I've got plenty of areas in my life where I struggle, where I make mistakes. But I'm able to say to myself, no, the true me is not a slave of anger, of lust, of need for approval, of need for control. The true me is in Christ and created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's fantastic. That's the real John Risbinger. You won't see him quite so clearly because you see too many influences of the old self still there. But that's who I most truly am now. And so to this new self, sin is not all just being so authentic. No, no. Sin is a denial now of who I am in Christ. And obedience isn't repressive. No, it's being true to who I now am in Christ. And that's a game changer. The pattern of transformation. Put off your old self, be made new in the attitude of your minds, and put on the new self. Well, the, uh, I just noticed that my countdown clock has got stuck. And it's telling me I've still got 50 minutes to go, and I've realized that I haven't. So we will land very quickly. But if you go, here's a bit of homework for you for tomorrow. If you go through verses 25 to 32 of Ephesians 4, you will see that pattern worked out precisely in five different specific case studies. I love it that Paul lands it in specific examples, specific realities. The first is truth in conversation, verse 25. And you'll see the pattern worked out. Old self, new self, new thinking. Then resolution in conflict, 26 and 7. Sharing in community, verse 28. Grace in conversation, verses 29 and 30. And forgiveness in community. I'd love to work through some of those with you, but time has gone. And hey, it gives you something to think about between now and tomorrow. Let's just stand back as we land. Deep change and whole life worship. Being deeply transformed by Jesus, being deeply in love with Jesus. Reflecting the likeness of Jesus in all of life, living for the glory of Jesus in all of life. That is how significant the renewing of our minds is. And that, here's the good news, is the work that God is wanting to do among us and in us here at New Horizon this week. I'm excited for that journey. And I hope you are as well. See you tomorrow. Thank you. Mark. Thank you for listening to this talk. 
If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.